Issues Etc. is listener-supported. We rely on you for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Now, if you appreciate Issues Etc., please consider making a tax-deductible gift today. You can make a secure online contribution at issuesetc.org. You can also donate by check. Make your check payable to Issues Etc. and send it to Issues Etc., Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. And thanks for your support. No matter what we choose to believe, there's no God who condones taking the life of an innocent human being. Where I think we are in the culture, but also with religious institutions, is that people have stopped hating us that is to say LGBT people, but they're not yet ready to celebrate us. That's the next big work to do. Maybe it's something as simple as you whistle while you work. Just whistle while you work. Mega churches are a house of cards. Mega churches really are the primary example of what's wrong with evangelicalism, why it's so thin, so insubstantial so unsatisfying. Southern Illinois truck drivers love issues, etc. Well, by now you might have already finished everything off, the turkey and the stuffing, and are sitting around with your family for an hour of issues, etc. Maybe the turkey is still in the oven. This Thanksgiving Day, we observe something. How far back does it really go? There are proclamations from presidents and governments about days of national repentance and Thanksgiving. Now it's more just Thanksgiving. It's been reduced to Turkey Day or another day to watch great football. Nothing wrong with that. But what was the first Thanksgiving, if we can call it that, all about? Who were the pilgrims and what were they here for? I know what we were taught. We were taught that they were uh, fleeing religious oppression and that they had a pretty good first year and celebrated Thanksgiving with the Indians. Is that the real story? Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. on this Thanksgiving Day. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Our guest for the next hour is Pastor David J. Weber. He's pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Scottsdale, Arizona, and Son of Righteousness Lutheran Church in Queen Creek, Arizona. Both Pastor Weber and his wife are descendants of several Mayflower pilgrims. We'll be talking about them during this hour as well. Pastor Weber, welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm glad to be with you. This day that we call the first Thanksgiving, was it in fact a Thanksgiving observance? Well, partly, simply because uh, the pilgrims would always have offered a prayer before they shared any meal, thanking God for the food on the table, as we do when we say grace. But the pilgrims did not refer to that first observance as a day of Thanksgiving. Uh, They they understood it to be basically a harvest celebration, celebrating the fact that they had survived for the first year, celebrating the fact that they had brought in a pretty good harvest. And so they got together and had a communal meal, uh, which actually lasted for three days, uh, almost like a town festival, because they also had games of chance and competitions and just had a good fun time for three days and invited uh, their Indian allies to come and the Native Americans of the area came in number of about 90 or so and joined them in these festivities. So they were simply celebrating life, celebrating the blessings of God. Uh, There would have been a prayer of thanks before any meal, but they didn't refer to this as an observance of community thanksgiving. How did this event 
that is, you know, while significant in its time for these people, marking a year of, of relative prosperity uh, of a new colony in a new land, how did this come to be so strongly associated with the holiday of Thanksgiving? Well, the pilgrims did have these kinds of harvest festivals every year on occasion when the circumstances of history would call for it, the leaders would also call for uh, a religious observance of thanksgiving, which would be spent in church, which would be spent worshiping and praying and so forth. They did both of these things. They would never have established a thanksgiving observance as a religious observance per se to be something that was done on a regular basis, because they would have considered that to be papist and much too liturgical and akin to following a church year, which they were strictly opposed to. Uh, But they did do that on occasion, as well as having the Harvest Festival every year. And in New England, after a while, both of these uh, ideas did sort of get merged in the popular mind. And in the New England states, uh, an observance in the autumn of a Thanksgiving and Harvest Festival combination did become normal. It also became normal in other parts of the country where New England settlers migrated to and uh, became a national observance only at the time of the Civil War in 1863. Before that time, it was something done in New England and in places in the Midwest and elsewhere where New Englanders had settled. What do you think is the biggest myth about this communal meal between the pilgrims and their Indian allies? Oh, I really don't know um, how many myths there are in regard to it. Um, I think that some people are very critical of what they see as a secularizing of the Thanksgiving holiday, which would be to um, people who are not very religious today observing Thanksgiving without the distinctive religious element being attached to it. And people would see that as a departure. People would see that as, uh, as a as a problem of the secularization of our society, but actually that is much closer to what the pilgrims were doing. The pilgrims did make a clear distinction between their social celebrations and observances, uh, which they would share with the the natives in the area with whom they shared an alliance and uh, friendly relations, and their distinctly religious observances, which were matters of church and which would not have involved religious fellowship with people who did not share their beliefs. And so they observed the original so-called Thanksgiving uh, as a community festival where everybody was able to come and participate without the blending together of religious differences. And uh, that maybe that's not such a bad thing, because that distinction is one that I think we should continue to make. Who were the pilgrims, and why did they come to this continent? Well, the original core group of the settlers of Plymouth Colony called the Pilgrims started out in the area around Scrooby in northern England, and they were people who had originally been a part of the broader movement of Puritanism in the Church of England, wanting to initiate further reforms in Anglicanism to make it conform more to their view of what the Scriptures required and to make it less Catholic in its character and flavor. But uh, the people in the Scrooby area finally decided that the Church of England was irreformable and that what God really wanted them to do was simply to set up their own independent congregation. And so they were persecuted. They were hunted down because of their nonconformity, because they were separatists. 
And because of that persecution, they did eventually flee to Holland, where they were able to have religious toleration and where they were able to function as an independent, non-conforming congregational church. Um, However, in Holland, they began to see after several years in the early 1600s that their children were growing up with Dutch ways, which they perceived to be more worldly and less spiritual. Their children were also losing their English cultural identity, and um, the leaders of the congregation did not think that was a good thing. And so they cast about for an idea of where they could go in order to be able to practice their faith as they confessed it, but also where they could establish a society that would reflect the societal values that they believed in. They wanted to go someplace where they could establish, as it were, a new England. Not Englishmen in Holland, but Englishmen in a new England, but a new England that would be a pious England, that would get rid of all of the influences of popery, as they would have called them, that would uh, have a godly society encouraging godly values. And so that is why they eventually came to America, where they could, as it were, start from scratch and establish a new England along their, uh, their Puritan and congregational and Calvinist theological lines. There were also, however, several other families who came with them who were uh, brought into the project by the businessmen in London who were the investors that, who provided the financing for the settlement. The pilgrims did not have a lot of money, and so they had to find people in England who were willing to finance this venture. They did find them, but the terms included that they would send some of their own people who would contribute needed skills and abilities to the settlement. So there was a mixture of the people who were from Holland, who were adherents of the more strict separatist religion, and people from England who were, for the most part, members of the Church of England. And uh, they blended themselves together into the colony that then was established in 1620 as Plymouth. So this was, we're told that they were fleeing religious persecution, but not religious persecution in Holland per se. It sounds as though this was as much a an effort to retain what they considered to be good um, English culture as it was to exercise a freedom of religion. About a minute before our break. Yes, that's precisely correct. They were fleeing persecution when they left England to go to Holland. But when they left Holland to come to America, they were desiring to establish a New England society. Certainly, they wanted to go someplace where they could continue to practice their faith, but they also wanted to go someplace where they could establish a society that would be in harmony with that faith and that would promote the kind of social virtues and values that they wanted their children and descendants to have. And of course, they wanted to be able to continue to speak the English language and preserve those aspects of English culture that they considered were acceptable and godly. We're talking about the pilgrims and what we call the first Thanksgiving. Pastor David J. Weber is our guest on this Thanksgiving date. Thursday, November the 26th. He's pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Scottsdale, Arizona, and son of Righteousness Lutheran Church in Queen Creek, Arizona. Both Pastor Weber and his wife are descendants of the of several Mayflower pilgrims. We'll talk about uh, the Puritans on the other side of the break, because often the Puritans and the pilgrims get confused with one another. We'll talk about what was life like for the pilgrims there in their new colony. And as Pastor Weber has already mentioned several times, they appear to be wary of anything that smacks of Roman Catholicism. Were they anti-Catholic? 
We'll answer that question as well on the other side of the break. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. More with Pastor David J. Weber on Thanksgiving after this. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by joining the Issues Etc. 300. Grace Lutheran, Henderson, Nevada. Faith Lutheran, Orange City, Iowa. Bethany Lutheran, Fairview Heights, Illinois. Bethlehem Lutheran, North Zolts, Texas. Risen Christ Lutheran, Arvada, Colorado. Trinity Lutheran and Grace Lutheran, Wichita, Kansas. Emmanuel Lutheran, Perryville, Missouri. Risen Savior Lutheran, Basar, Kansas. St. John Lutheran, Champaign, Illinois. Trinity Lutheran, Auburn, Nebraska. Holy Trinity Lutheran, Columbia, South Carolina, Grace Lutheran, Elgin, Texas, Gethsemane Lutheran, Marion, Ohio, and St. John Lutheran, Springfield, Pennsylvania. Find out how your church can support this worldwide outreach by including Issues Etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org, click support, and print a one-page flyer. When your congregation becomes a congregational sponsor, we'll publicize your congregation on the radio, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Talk radio for the thinking Christian. You're listening to Issues Etc. The 500th anniversary of the Lutheran Reformation is fast approaching. We have such a rich history as Lutherans, and many people don't realize that. The CLCC offers a seminar called Your Reformation Walk that teaches that rich heritage and helps you appreciate it. The CLCC also offers other seminars designed to help laity learn to appreciate what Lutherans believe, teach, and confess. So invite us to your church. Visit the CLCC.org and get details on scheduling a seminar for your church today. Would you like to help your son or daughter achieve their maximum athletic potential? Hi, this is Jeff Schwartz, General Manager of Lutheran Public Radio. My friend, fellow parishioner, and certified athletic trainer, Kevin Rysick, is the owner and operator of Arch Fitness of East Alton, Illinois. Arch Fitness specializes in sports performance training for middle school to collegiate level athletes. For more information, call Kevin at 618-670-6952. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. With the advent of Thanksgiving, of course, we think about the coming of Christmas, a great Christmas gift. You might want to be thinking about this early. The Lutheran Study Bible, it's the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November. It's a great gift from Concordia Publishing House, a resource that you could give to young and old alike. I mean, you never get too old for the good scholarship that you'll find in the Lutheran Study Bible, and it's never too early to start studying the Bible in this kind of depth. Think about the Lutheran Study Bible as a Christmas gift. Give Concordia Publishing House a call, 1-800-325-3040, 1-800-325-3040, and order the Lutheran Study Bible for yourself or for someone else. You can find out more at our website, issuesetc.org. You've mentioned several times that they were at the very least wary of things that smacked of Roman Catholicism. Were the pilgrims anti-Catholic? Yes, they definitely were. As I mentioned earlier, the pilgrims of the Plymouth Colony had originally emerged from the general Puritan movement in England, 
which had become a strong factor during the time of Queen Elizabeth and continued to be a strong factor during the time of King James. The Puritans, in general, as a general category, were opposed to the Church of England retaining the Episcopal structure of uh, church government by bishops. They were opposed to the Church of England retaining the historic liturgical forms, symbols and ceremonies, vestments, crosses, stained glass windows, and so forth. They were even opposed to the singing of hymns that had been composed by people. They believed that in worship we should sing only inspired texts, and so they sang psalms or, or metered paraphrases of psalms. And the worship services that the Puritans would have wanted to see throughout England would have been very austere, very stark, very plain and simple. They were basically following the model that had been set in motion earlier by Ulrich Zwingli in the 16th century to take everything out of the church that was not, in their perception, directly commanded by God to be there. When they decided that they wanted to set up their own congregation apart from Anglicanism and to stop trying to reform the Church of England and just simply to set up their own church, there is where they did have a parting of the ways as far as strategy is concerned with the rest of the Puritans who still wanted to stay within the Church of England to purify it, to purge it of these Catholic and non-biblical accretions. But they did share with, both groups did share with each other the perception that these things are wrong, that they should not be there, and true Christians should not be a part of a church that has retained these things. Uh, what, what they often spoke of was the simplicity of the gospel. This was a term they used quite often to describe their ideal uh, expectation of what it was supposed to be like to be a Christian and to go to church as a Christian. All right, what was, uh, what was their life like as a colony? I mean, how would you describe it? Well, the pilgrims are often uh, thought to have been very repressed and to have been uh, people who didn't like doing anything fun or enjoyable. This was absolutely not true at all. Uh, they did have a hearty enjoyment of life, and they were not adverse to community celebrations. Um, they loved having weddings and celebrating weddings, and uh, they, they enjoyed so many of the things that we would, of course, recognize as Lutherans are things to be enjoyed as good gifts of God, according to the first article of the Creed. Uh, they did, however, draw some very sharp lines as far as their distinctly religious observances were concerned. There, the Bible would reign and rule in the sense of thinking that the Bible was to be seen as prescribing exactly what church and religious practice was to be like. But as far as their community life um, in, in, in secular affairs, uh, they enjoyed having fun. They enjoyed uh, celebrating with each other. They did, of course, have strong, a strong policy against fornication and adultery. It doesn't mean that they were repressed, however, because what they did was encouraged marriage. Uh, their basic policy was that people should get married early and often. People would get married early. If somebody was widowed, then very shortly after that, that person would be expected to get remarried. Because of their basic Calvinism and their belief that, that God sort of set things in motion um, and governed the, the affairs of their life according to his providence, they would tend to have the idea that, uh, let's say, if I lost my wife, the first woman in the community who would then become a widow was sort of 
God's way of pointing to me who my new wife should be. They didn't seem to have a lot of romance in the sense of, of uh, like the courtship of Miles Standish, which uh, is a work of pure fiction. But they did believe that marriage is instituted by God, it, and it has great blessings attached to it, and they tried to look for signs from God's providence in determining who they should get married to, and that was one of the things that they would look for. So very often, when I've looked at the records uh, of the Plymouth Colony, I've seen that usually if somebody was widowed and then somebody of the opposite sex was widowed, they would end up getting married within a year. That was very commonly done. And uh, they enjoyed their lives together. They enjoyed family life and many of the things that we would consider to be just very wholesome and and, uh, good things in society. Was it another thing that often happens with the pilgrims and their and their time in this colony is it is idealized, it's romanticized, and it's kind of the Americana ideal uh, uh, that it is the pristine Americana that everyone uh, kind of ascri- uh, aspires to. Your thoughts there? Well, I would have to say this: um, having studied New England history pretty extensively over the years, I would say that. In many respects, certainly not in all, but in many respects, the Pilgrim Society in Plymouth Colony does establish certain precedents that are perhaps not such a bad thing for America to learn from. But it has to be distinguished from the Puritan colonies that were established several years later, especially in Massachusetts Bay, where there was a lot of uh, forceful repression of dissent and where there was, as it were, a a theocratic system set up, where the clergy exercised a a very strong direct influence on the civil order. In in the Plymouth colony, there was a much more careful emphasis on keeping distinctions between political power and religious authority. And there was also a more tolerant and patient spirit in regard to people who hadn't quite come along in understanding things religiously as the uh, pilgrim leaders would have understood them. Certainly, they didn't believe in religious freedom. There was the expectation that there would be only one uh, legally permitted church in the community, and if anybody was going to go to church, that was the one that they were expected to go to. But people who were still adherents of the Church of England, people who hadn't yet bought into all of the beliefs of the pilgrim church, they were, they were not coerced to become members. They were uh, not coerced to conform in every single respect to the the pilgrim religious practices. And within the privacy of their own home, they would have been allowed still to practice certain Anglican or Church of England religious practices. There was just no provision for them officially in the colony church. Well, there would be no Anglican church allowed. Uh, A few years after the settlement, there was kind of an interesting uh, event where a man named John Lyford, who was an Anglican clergyman, was sent over by the investors in England for, to serve uh, those people in the colony who still did consider themselves to be Anglican. And uh, they tried to pick somebody who they thought wouldn't ruffle the pilgrims' feathers too much. But of course, the pilgrims were extremely unhappy that he was there. And before long, they expelled him from the colony and told him he had to go. And mostly, that was brought on because he baptized somebody's baby. There was actually no pilgrim pastor in the colony. The pastor of their congregation remained in Holland with 
the other members of the congregation who had not yet come to America. The religious leader in Plymouth was William Brewster, who was the elder of the church, but not an ordained pastor. Therefore, he was not authorized to do baptisms or the Lord's Supper. And so any of the babies who were born in the colony were basically not baptized. And so there was this one particular Anglican family who wanted their baby to be baptized. They asked this Anglican minister to do it, and it was on that basis that he was expelled from the colony. Another interesting thing about that person, though, or perhaps about the later generations of his family, is that John Lyford was a, a direct ancestor of Abraham Lincoln. Oh, so what's the connection there? Is this probably a good, I mean, not to jump ahead to Lincoln too much, but it seems if Lincoln is aware of, of a connection there, that uh, that would also... Um, uh, well, Lincoln himself was not aware of his uh, colonial New England ancestry. Uh, this is something that has been uncovered since his lifetime. He, he didn't really know where his forebears came from, but uh, his surname, Lincoln, actually originates in the town of Hingham uh, in Massachusetts, and Lyford when he left Plymouth, ended up in Hingham and uh, married into, his descendants married into the Lincoln family of Hingham, and then somebody who came down from that family eventually migrated down toward Kentucky and uh, became the ancestor of Abraham Lincoln. But Lincoln himself was not aware of that personal heritage of his. What was the relationship of the Pilgrims with the Indians? You mentioned before that they're allies of sorts and that there's some peace here initially. What did they think about the Native Americans? Well, when the Pilgrims came to New England, they came to a place where the natives had had experience with Englishmen before, and some of their experience with Englishmen in the past had not been good. There had been at least two incidents where English, uh, uh, English ships had come and had actually stolen native Indians as slaves and brought them against their will to England. And so when the Pilgrims came on the Mayflower in 1620, uh, they were attacked at one point on Cape Cod, and the and the natives figured that these are just more of the same kind of people. Oh, let's take a break here. I asked my question a little bit late, but I do want to hear the rest of this story about the pilgrims and the Indians that they found here when they colonized this continent. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's Thanksgiving Day. Pastor David J. Weber is our guest, and we're talking about the pilgrims. Stay tuned. We Lutherans were never aided by following along with some other traditions, theological priorities, and catchphrases. Issues Etc. regular guest, Pastor Heath Curtis, coordinator for stewardship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod on a Lutheran approach to stewardship. Other folks are not approaching it from our good, solid Lutheran understanding of law and gospel and vocation. There's a place to talk about this in Christianity, and we have a way of talking about stewardship as Lutherans without ever using the word stewardship, if you like. I'm going to talk to you today about your vocation in your home, in your church, in your society, and how each one of these makes a claim on you, on your presence, on your support, on your prayers. That's how we should talk about this as Lutherans. You'll find several stewardship resources at lcms.org slash stewardship, lcms.org slash stewardship. It was the day after Christmas in 1538 when family and friends who were gathered around Luther's table heard him say, there is no finer gift that a parent can give to a child than an education in the liberal arts. 
For over 100 years, St. Paul's Lutheran School in Brookfield, Illinois, has been emphasizing the six chief parts and the seven liberal arts, providing classical education in the Lutheran tradition. Visit our website at spbrookfield.org or call 708-485-0650. Thankful for God's service through the pastors in your life? Then consider attending Christ for Us in the Office of the Holy Ministry, a conference of the Association of Confessing Evangelical Lutheran Congregations, this coming February 25th through 27th in Cedar Falls, Iowa. Visit our website at acelc.net for information on Christ for Us in the Office of the Ministry. Register online at acelc.net. Your comprehensive source for information, teaching, and truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. Did you know that you can listen to Issues Etc. 24-7? Check out our website, issuesetc.org, and go to the Listen On Demand page. Listen at the gym, in your kitchen, in your garden, on your iPod, your computer, or in your car. The technology may be new, but the truth never changes. Issues Etc. On Demand audio, available for your convenience at issuesetc.org. Ten hours of new programming each week. IssuesETC.org and click Listen On Demand. Are you thankful for the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc.? Please consider making a special Thanksgiving gift. You can donate online at IssuesETC.org. You can also make a special Thanksgiving contribution by check. Make your check payable to Issues Etc. and send it to Box 912, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. With five weeks left in 2013, we're $73,000 short of making budget. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about the Pilgrims, Thanksgiving. Pastor David J. Weber is our guest, pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Scottsdale, Arizona, and son of Righteousness Lutheran Church in Queen Creek, Arizona. Host Pastor Weber and his wife are descendants of several Mayflower Pilgrims. You were telling us before the break about the relationship, it sounds rather complicated, between the Pilgrims and the Native Americans. You said that they were initially attacked by some. Pick up where you left off. Yes, the natives were hostile toward them because they had had bad experiences with Englishmen before, with the kidnapping of some of their people and with some of their people being taken into slavery to Europe. However, there was one particular individual who providentially was there in order to facilitate peace and goodwill and harmony between the Plymouth settlers and the natives in the region, and that was Tisquantum, also known as Squanto. He was one of the Indians who had actually been kidnapped and brought to Spain by an unscrupulous English mariner with the intent of selling him into slavery. Squanto, however, was rescued by some, some Franciscan friars in Spain, and they gave him instruction in the Christian faith. They also somehow facilitated his uh, travel to England, where he lived for several years, learning the English language. And then uh, a very kind-hearted English, um, English businessman arranged for him to be transported back to New England with the hope that he could uh, explain to the natives in the area that not all of the Englishmen were as ruthless as the ones they had encountered. Uh, Squanto was expected to explain to the members of his tribe that uh, uh, they should actually trust the better sort of Englishmen and establish trade with them. However, when he got back to New England, he found that his particular uh, tribal group 
had been completely wiped out by a pestilence about a year or two earlier. So in the particular place where uh, his people had lived, nobody was there anymore, and he was more or less all by himself in the world. He did attach himself to uh, the chief uh, leader of the Wampanoag people in a neighboring community, and very soon after he got back to New England, that is when the pilgrims arrived. It just so happens also that the place that they decided to settle in was the place where his uh, group had formerly lived. So when he was introduced to them, he then decided to live with them because after all, that was his old village territory. And he was able to explain also to the other natives that these people were decent people. He was able to explain to them, based on his experience in England, that most of the English people were not like the ones who had kidnapped him. And so because of his uh, credentials, you might say, his credibility with his experience, he was able to persuade the Wampanoag tribes that lived in the area around Plymouth to be kindly disposed toward the pilgrims and to establish uh, cordial relations with them. And that is, in fact, what happened. And uh, for many decades, the Plymouth Colony had very good and cordial relations with the natives in the region. Let's talk about the Puritans, because it's a common confusion. I think I've probably engaged in it as well, confusing these two very distinct groups, not only religiously, but in many other ways, uh, distinct groups, the pilgrims that we're talking about and the Puritans. Sort that out for us, if you would, Pastor Weber. The basic theological impulses were the same. Uh, They believed in the same kind of modified Calvinist theology. They believed um, that the ceremonies of the Roman Church and of the Church of England were wrong and should be gotten rid of. But there was a difference in attitude. And I think that that difference in attitude can be attributed to two factors. First of all, in England, the Puritans were maybe not as pure as the pilgrims were, because the Puritans still remained within the structures of the Church of England. They certainly did make themselves to be a nuisance to the church hierarchy, because they were always agitating for reforms that would have made the Church of England more Calvinistic and less Anglican. But they stayed within the structure of the Church of England. And so, in large measure, they were tolerated because they were still a part of the structure. The pilgrims, however, had separated themselves from the structure and therefore were the object of direct persecution. Because the pilgrims had experienced persecution at the hands of the Anglican authorities, they psychologically simply became less disposed to persecute other people. They knew what it was like to be persecuted, and so uh, they didn't really have the stomach for a lot of persecution of, of religious dissenters who did eventually turn up in their colony. When the, the Puritans came to New England and set up their own colony in Massachusetts Bay, they didn't, they didn't have those kinds of scruples. And so they had a very strict enforcement of religious conformity. In England, the Puritans really didn't have a strong objection to a religion that was governed and maintained by the government. They just thought that the government in England was maintaining the wrong kind of religion. And so when they got to New England, they set up a system where their government maintained their Puritan religion. Whereas the pilgrims had a more principled uh, objection to that, believing in the distinction of powers, believing that the civil authority and the spiritual authority should be kept 
distinct. Even though there would be close cooperation, there would not be an undue mingling in their perception. And the second reason, I think, also why the the Plymouth Colony had a different attitude and approach was because of the influence of John Robinson. He had been their pastor in Holland. He was a very well-educated person. Uh, He was recognized as a competent theologian by uh, the theological faculty at the University of Leiden, where he lived. He wrote quite a few tracts and treatises. Um, He was very, very astute, very well educated, but also had a really admirable attitude of explaining to people that as Christians, we win people over uh, in love. We can't coerce people to the truth, but we must seek with the Lord's help to win people over to the truth by sharing God's word with them and by showing love for them. And that spirit and that attitude that he had permeated the original generation of the settlers of the of the Plymouth Colony and really did uh, color the way that they treated dissenters, the way they treated the native population, and just the way they acted in general. Robinson really was in many ways a remarkable person. He was somebody who uh, had ideas that might have been considered even a little bit liberal for his day. In, in the highly polemically charged era in which he lived, it would have been almost impossible to find a Puritan who would think, for example, that it was possible for a person to be a Christian within the Roman Catholic Church. But John Robinson believed that it was possible, that God's elect could be found in all of these places. And so uh, he was much less harsh and much less severe in his polemical attitude and in his attitude toward people who didn't agree with his ideas. And that, that spirit, spirit permeated the attitude of William Bradford, the governor, and other leaders in the Plymouth Colony during the time when those who had been under Robinson's influence in Holland were still alive. If you were to categorize, again, with the Pilgrim and Puritan distinction, if you would to, were to theologically categorize the pilgrims, what camp would they fall into? I mean, um, I assume among those uh, common in the Reformation, where would you put them? The pilgrims and the Puritans, as far as their theological position, were squarely within the Calvinist Reformed camp. But where they would have differed, especially the pilgrims, where they would have differed with Calvin, would have been in matters of church polity. The Puritans, in large measure, did believe in Calvin's more Presbyterian type of polity as the one that they thought the Bible had commanded. But the Congregationalists were actually Congregationalists. John Robinson was a theologian who developed a a, a biblical polity of Congregationalism, believing that each local congregation is to govern itself and is responsible for calling into office its own pastor, its own teacher, its own deacons, and so forth. And therefore, they were Calvinists, but yet with a congregational polity as, a, as compared to the more Presbyterian polity that John Calvin himself thought was the biblically mandated polity. We, of course, as Lutherans would say that the Bible does not mandate any particular polity or form of church government, and that any polity that facilitates the preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments is usable and acceptable. But but people in the Reformed camp were always looking for God's divinely commanded way of setting up the structure of the church, and they did disagree with each other as far as what that way was. 
And John Robinson and the Pilgrims definitely came down on the side of congregationalism as the way they thought God had commanded the church to be set up. So there weren't real strong theological, I mean, strictly speaking, theological differences. These were issues of whether or not God commanded or forbidden, forbidden a certain kind of church structure about a minute before our break. Right. The differences between the Pilgrims and the Puritans were in the area of their general attitude and in their understanding of what the proper relationship of, of church and state should be. The Puritans in England did tend to be inclined toward Presbyterianism. When the Massachusetts Bay settlers came to America, they actually did come under the influence of the Pilgrims and establish a congregational form of church rather than a Presbyterian form of church, but they still did link it closely to the civil government in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, which is something that the Pilgrims refused to do. Pastor David J. Weber is our guest. When we come back, what became of the Plymouth Colony? And we're going to talk about the influence of this first colony, these Pilgrims, on the American ideals as they began to form and gel. What of their way of thinking about society, of themselves politically, socially, influenced the American ideal? It's Thanksgiving Day, Thursday, November the 26th. We're talking about the Pilgrims. Pastor David J. Weber is our guest, pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Scottsdale, Arizona, son of Righteousness Lutheran Church in Queen Creek, Arizona. Both he and his wife are descendants of several Mayflower Pilgrims. We'll be right back. Lutheran theology is more urgently needed at this moment than at any other moment in history. Dr. Lawrence White of Our Savior Lutheran Church in Houston, Texas, on why they support Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is in the forefront of that movement in the extension of the kingdom of God, the proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the demonstration that our Lord Jesus is not uh, irrelevant to what's going on in the culture, that our historic biblical Lutheran theology is more urgently needed at this moment than at any other moment in history, and Issues Etc. is in the forefront of that movement. You can support this worldwide outreach by making a tax-deductible gift online, issuesetc.org, issuesetc.org, or you can donate by check. Lutheran Public Radio, Box 912, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Historic, authentic, Christian radio. You're listening to Issues Etc. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by joining the Issues Etc. 300. Our Savior Lutheran Pacifica, California, Messiah Lutheran Danville, California. Faith Lutheran Capistrano Beach, California, Grace Lutheran San Mateo, California, Our Savior Lutheran Grand Rapids, Michigan, St. Paul Lutheran Hamill, Illinois, St. Paul Lutheran Brookfield, Illinois, Grace Lutheran Racine, Wisconsin, St. John's Lutheran Mayville, Wisconsin, Prince of Peace Lutheran Crestwood, Missouri, Faith Lutheran Plano, Texas, St. Paul Lutheran Austin, Texas, University Hills Lutheran Denver, Colorado, St. John Lutheran Topeka, Kansas, Peace Lutheran Alma, Michigan, Zion Lutheran Imperial, Nebraska, and Trinity Lutheran St. Charles, Missouri. 
Find out how your church can support this worldwide outreach by including Issues Etc. in your mission or advertising budget at our website, issuesetc.org. Click support. The Issues Etc. 300. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's Thanksgiving Day. Pastor David J. Weber is our guest for another 10 minutes, talking about the pilgrims. We'll get into their political influence here in just a moment. And in about uh, 20 minutes, we'll study the hymn, Alleluia, Sing to Jesus, with Pastor Will Whedon. That's coming up here on Issues, etc. What became of the Plymouth Colony? The Plymouth Colony was established in 1620 by the original settlers who came on the very famous ship, the Mayflower. Over the years, additional settlers also came. These would have included remaining members of the Pilgrim Congregation in Holland, as well as other people who came directly from England. But then approximately 10 years after the establishment of the Plymouth Colony, the the Puritans established their colony in Massachusetts Bay. It was much better funded and financed. It was much larger. They had many hundreds and hundreds of families that came over so that uh, in New England, before long, the Massachusetts Bay Colony began to dominate, and Plymouth uh, was never able to become as strong politically or economically because of the fact that its near neighbor to the north was such a large, imposing presence. As, as we probably would uh, recall, in England itself, the agitation between the Puritans and the Anglicans finally reached a point where there was a civil war for several years, which resulted in the abolition of the monarchy for several years in England with the rule of Cromwell. But that didn't work out very well because the Puritans were always squabbling and arguing among themselves, and the English people as a whole decided after a time that they wanted to restore the monarchy. And so Charles II became the King of England, and when he did that, he began a process of systematically trying to rein in the independence of the various colonies in America. One of the things that he did was forcibly merge the Plymouth Colony and the Massachusetts Bay Colony, so that in 1691, Plymouth was abolished as an independent colony, and it then became a part of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and its history after that was basically a part of the history of the Massachusetts Colony. Let's talk about the influence of the Pilgrims. I mean, albeit small and then eclipsed by the Puritan enterprise, but let's talk about the influence of their way of life on what eventually became the American, for at first, the New England, but then the American ideal. Well, as I mentioned earlier, the Pilgrims did have an influence on, excuse me, the Pilgrims did have an influence on the, the Puritans in this respect, that they did persuade the ones who came to America to adopt a congregational form of polity as opposed to a Presbyterian form of polity. And that meant that in the congregation in each community, the the voting members of the church would get together, they would decide matters, uh, there would be lots of discussion and debate, and then there would finally be a decision. And uh, this was something that also carried over into civil life. We've heard about the Mayflower Compact, where... uh, on board the Mayflower, before the Pilgrims landed originally in 1620, all of the, uh, the, the male heads of households got together and agreed. They, they formed a, a covenant with each other that they would conform themselves to the laws that were passed 
by common consent, that they would respect the leaders who were elected by common consent. And so basically they established on board the Mayflower uh, a, a form of, of civil government that was very much a reflection of the congregational church polity that the pilgrims also believed in. And in American history, there has always been this strong impulse toward democracy, where people want to be heard, they want to be a part of the decision-making process. I think that the general intolerance of uh, elitism in America and the idea that uh, every citizen should be a participant in voting and in matters of of self-government was something that can be traced back specifically to the influence of the pilgrims in Plymouth Colony. This was a very different kind of an influence than what would have emanated from, say, the Virginia Colony, which was settled by Anglicans and which had a very hierarchical view of society as well as of the church. And I think that it is also not a coincidence that slavery as an institution in American history was perpetuated in the South, where the founding colony was Jamestown uh, under the the hierarchical elitist attitudes of Anglicanism, as compared to in the North, where slavery was abolished, because the North was more uh, significantly influenced by the ideals of the pilgrims and and the underlying assumption that everybody has the right to make his own way, everybody has the right to be heard, everybody is in some way equal to everybody else. That was an idea that existed in a germinal form in their time, and it has worked itself out over the centuries into basically the kind of democratic system that we in America have become very accustomed to. I have to ask, did they eat turkey when they gathered for that first communal meal? Yes, they did. There were lots of wild fowl in the area. Turkeys specifically are mentioned, and so uh, that was one of the things that would have been on the table on the first uh, celebration. But more prominently than the turkey would have been venison, because uh, when the natives came in the number of 90 or more, uh, they realized that there wasn't enough food for all of them, and so they went into the woods and they were able to, to shoot five deer, and they brought them back in and shared that with the people. So there was also venison on the table, probably more venison than turkey, but turkey was included. However, there probably was no pumpkin pie and also probably no cranberry sauce. <laughs> did, the, did these first pilgrims have an inkling of what would become, they are but one small toehold on this continent, and certainly not the first and not the last, but did they have an inkling of what would become of uh, the ideals that they brought to this new land at all, with about a minute? To a certain extent, they did. Of course, they could never have imagined everything that eventually took place in the development of America, but they did understand that they were leaving Europe and the European way of making everybody stay in the station in life in which he was born. And they knew that they were coming to a place where you could rise as far as as your abilities with God's help would allow you to rise. Um, They knew that they were starting a new experiment. They, of course, did have a strongly religious component in their belief about what their colony and what the new world would be, that it would be a beacon light of godliness and, uh, and glory to God for the world. Um, And I suppose that in many ways, America has retained that dream. It has always retained more of a 
idea that we should have some kind of a spiritual component to our national identity. But uh, they, they did know that they were leaving Europe and that they were establishing something different from Europe and from the kind of controls and lack of social mobility that afflicted people who stayed in Europe. With only 30 seconds, what is it like to be able to trace your descendant, your, your, your ancestry, to some of these colonists? Well, it's great fun to, to know about this. Of course, uh, I don't talk about it too much with people because they might think that I'm bragging about my family tree. And I had, a, of course, ancestors who came from a lot of other places at other times in American history, too. But uh, when I was serving as a pastor in New England for several years back in the 1990s, actually on the territory of Plymouth Colony, uh, it wasn't actually an extraordinary thing. A large number of the members of my congregation were also Mayflower descendants. And so we, we sort of, we knew who we were and we were aware of that history. And it, it, it felt good to sort of be connected to the original roots um, of, the, of the country in terms of our own family history. But we also recognize that every immigrant who has come to America with the same kind of dream as the pilgrims is also a part of that story. America is filled with misfits and dreamers and the descendants of misfits and dreamers. And so we're all really pilgrims in that sense, not just the descendants of the Mayflower people. Pastor David J. Weber is pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Scottsdale, Arizona, and son of Righteousness Lutheran Church in Queen Creek, Arizona. Both Pastor Weber and his wife are descendants of several Mayflower pilgrims. Thank you very much for being our guest. My pleasure. Folks, if you're thankful for issues, etc., Please consider making a year-end tax-deductible gift. You can make a secure online donation at our website, issuesetc.org, or you can donate by check. Make your check payable to Lutheran Public Radio and send it to LPR, Box 912, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. That's LPR, Box 912, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Now, for any size gift... Between now and the end of the year, we'll send you a CD of one of my Advent and Christmas sermons. LPR, Box 912, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Thank you for your support. Coming up in a few minutes, we'll be joined by Pastor Will Whedon. We'll study the hymn, Alleluia, Sing to Jesus. I'm reminded on a day like this, whether you trace your ancestry to the pilgrims or not, I'm reminded acutely of how we are, as Pastor Weber said, all pilgrims, all sojourners in a world where we really don't belong. A colony from the future is what the church is, it's what Christians are, and we await a new heaven and a new earth. The apostle tells us our citizenship is with Christ, where he is in heaven, and we await from heaven Christ's return. We do not have a citizenship in this world. We're strangers wandering through because Christ has redeemed us from sin and death with his shed blood. Pilgrims all. I'm Todd Wilkin. More of Issues Etc. on this Thanksgiving Day after the break. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Lutheran Public Radio, P.O. Box 912, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. 
Box 912, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Collinsville, Illinois, is happy to support the Christ-centered, cross-focused ministry of Issues Etc. Join us for worship, Bible classes, youth ministry, and other opportunities to grow in Christ. We have a Christian day school for children in preschool to 8th grade. We are located at 1300 Beltline Road. Call us at 618-344-3151 or visit www.goodshepherdcollinsville.org. We know that you want to build your family on the right foundation from the very start, the foundation of Jesus Christ. Concordia Publishing House offers more than 8,000 products for churches, schools, and homes, dedicated customer service, and an experienced staff to help you focus on what matters most. Click to connect at cph.org. Concordia Publishing House, listening, responding, providing for God's people. Concordia Publishing House, cph.org. If you're a talk radio junkie like me, you might assume that the programming is free. Commercial advertisers pay for the production costs and staff salaries. Well, that's true for most radio talk shows, but not for Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is listener-supported. We rely on you to pay for the production, salary, and airtime costs for this worldwide outreach. Hi, this is Todd Wilkin asking you to consider making a tax-deductible gift to Issues Etc. today. You can donate online, issuesetc.org, or you can donate by check. Make your check payable to Lutheran Public Radio. The address? LPR, Box 912, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. LPR, Box 912, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234.